This is Salt and Spine. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you're tuning in for a very special episode today. We're recording live in front of an audience here at Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Hello, everybody. And we're thrilled to be here today with um, our guest, today's guest, Ali Slagle. Now, Ali is a freelance recipe developer and author whose work has been published in Food 52, The Washington Post, and more. She has contributed more than 250 recipes now to The New York Times and worked on a number of cookbooks other than her own, which we'll talk about today. Uh, and we're here to talk about Ali's first cookbook, I Dream of Dinner, So You Don't Have To, which brings us 150 recipes straight from her dinner Tetris approach, we'll talk about that too, um, to getting quick and really, I think, craveable meals on the table every day. So hi, Ali. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you, Brian. We are thrilled to have you um, and welcome back to the Bay Area. I know you lived here for a number of years. Yeah, so. it feels like a homecoming. Yes. Yeah. But we're going to start at the beginning because you didn't, you didn't grow up here. You lived here for a while, but you grew up in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area. Is that right? I did. And can you talk about the relationship with food when you were growing up? I know your mother and I think your grandmother were both really active cooks in your house. Mm -hmm. I think someone was always cooking or eating in my house at some point. Um, my mom was always cooking just very simple food, but very delicious food. And I loved watching her move through the kitchen. So in many ways, I wanted to like sit and do my homework in the, in the kitchen and watch her. And I think that's really how I learned how to cook. Um, just watching her move through the kitchen. And I think what was special about it is it's like, she wasn't looking at a piece of paper. She was looking around her kitchen to see what opportunities were there. Sure. Meaning what ingredients and stuff like that she could pull to make a meal. And so that's kind of what I wanted to bring to this book, that kind of sense of exploration. And you, you said you observed her a lot as a child in the kitchen. When did you sort of start to become more actively involved in cooking? Was that as a child or did that come later when you left the house? Well, she was very much the cook and I felt like I couldn't be the cook as well. So I started as a baker um, in okay. middle school. I would sell my baked goods to my fellow classmates. And then when I came to college, when I came here, it was less about like cooking or baking for fun and more just cooking because I had to feed myself. So I think that's when really I figured out how to cook in this manner. Sure. A lot of times when we talk to people, they talk about their mothers or their grandmothers cooking and say they didn't own a single cookbook. But I understand your mom did cook from some cookbooks and you were exposed to cookbooks from a pretty early age, too. Yeah, I think like it's kind of embarrassing, but we didn't really have novels. We had cookbooks. Okay. So if I wanted to like read something, I would pull a cookbook off of the shelf. Uh-huh. Yeah. You also, I know you also include a picture I just want to show people of your grandmother's biscotti yeah. recipe, right? <laughs> so speaking of cooking from recipes, like the one of the first pages in your book here is this biscotti recipe, if folks can see this, from your grandmother. Can you talk about the decision to include that, like on, you know, basically page two of your book? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, first of all, I had to fight to have that in the book, but I really felt like it was important in terms of showing that even great cooks don't always follow recipes to a T and that cooking in many ways 
is outside of the box and outside of the lines. So this is like the recipe that she's very much known for. And I don't even think she can read that recipe. It, <laughs> it's going to the grave, I think. I, I tried to read it. Yeah. I, can't, I can't really decipher. Well, I had to it, read but... it to make sure like nothing embarrassing was in it or offensive. You know? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you move out of the house, you come to college here at UC Berkeley, you start cooking a little bit more on your own, a little bit independently. But at the time, at least early college, you're not planning to pursue food as a career. Is that right? So what happened was when I was in high school, I worked at a travel bookstore, very much like a bookstore like this. Um, I thought like I wanted to go into books in some sense. And then when I came to college, I got an internship at 10 Speed Press, which is one of the best cookbook publishers out there. And that's kind of when my education in cooking really started, because my job was to read books and to understand them in a really deep way. Yeah, I, I've read a little bit about this moment. It feels sort of very serendipitous, right? Like you had this interest in cookbooks, but you weren't planning to pursue it and all the things just sort of aligned for you to end up at 10 Speed. And then you spend a number of years working on or next to cookbooks, right? You're at 10 Speed and then you go to Food 52 after working on some of the Food 52 cookbooks at 10 Speed Press. Can you talk about, you know, that's, that's the beginning of your career, right? Can you talk about how that impacted your view and relationship to cookbooks? Sure. I mean, I think I'm really lucky in that I've seen cookbooks from many different angles. So the internship was actually in the marketing and publicity department, which is obviously not where I ended up. Um, but I think it taught me about kind of like the end moment of a book. So like, you know, what is the product that you're trying to sell at the end? And then I moved to editorial. So I was working with copy editors and proofreaders, really getting into the granular of recipes um, and just being part of like the conversations that go into making books. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to Food 52, I was kind of on the author side as a project manager for their cookbooks. Um which meant like either ghostwriting or managing the photo shoot. So I just feel like I've seen it in a 360 way. And because of that, I think maybe a little bit more holistically about making a book. Like it's not just about the recipes or just about the photos. Like every detail is really important to the message of the book. Yeah, that's a great point. I think almost everybody we talk to has some moment where they realize the amount of work it takes to produce a cookbook. Uh -huh. It feels like maybe that happened for you quite early in your career before you ever even thought about writing one of your own, maybe? Yeah, it was definitely never a dream of mine. Um, <laughs> to write a cookbook? No, I just knew how much work it was. Sure. Um, I think, I don't know if it like took everything out of me or I gave it my all, but I think um, it was really important to me that I made something that was really additive because there are so many books out there. And um, I think, I just wanted to like truly be able to help people. Yeah, which is how we ended up with this book today. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about when that moment came for you that you decided to write a book of your own and how you came up with this concept that feels to you like it's additive to the the vast number of books yeah. that already exist, right? Yeah, well, I, I think from my experience, I knew how important an editor was and an editor that really understood um, your view, not just because like they're editing your words, but also because they are your advocate at the publisher and they have to fight for your vision. Um, and I met Jennifer Sitt and I was like, if I'm ever going to write a book, she's going to be my editor. Like there's okay. like, she's the one. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to write a book. Like, <laughs> I guess this is what's happening. Um, and the concept for the book really came from discussions with her about, um, she cooked a lot of my recipes. So she understood um, why they worked in her house. And so it's really was about just making the concept 
of a book from like what the ethos of the recipes are. Yeah. And before we talk about the book itself a little bit, I'm curious about that recipe development process because you have developed hundreds and hundreds of recipes. Many of them have become beloved recipes for many people, myself included. Um, especially I make a lot of your recipes from the New York Times on, on repeat. Can you talk about how you approach making, developing recipes that are, you know, that I, that have your signature slant to them, mm -hmm. which is few ingredients, really craveable, fresh. Someone once told me really early on, like, don't develop a recipe, make instructions for something that you're cooking in the sense that um, you don't want to like over editorialize the concept. So I think a lot of times recipes are like have every texture and every element and it's beautiful. And that's so great. Like that's worthwhile too. But for me, like a lot of that is important at like 7.30 on a Tuesday, right. you know, like like the need is really different. And so that's kind of what I think about, like, what do I want to cook? Maybe it's not like a recipe in like an official sense, but then I make a recipe from it. Sure. And the books in your recipe, just to be explicit for people, right, they typically have like eight, five to eight ingredients max, typically take like 30 minutes or less, use, you know, one or two pans maximum. I've seen all of this in the marketing, which, you know, you have a marketing background. So I love that that's in your marketing materials. Was that something that came about as you were putting the book together, those sort of metrics? Or was that something that you developed enough recipes by the time you started to write that you knew they kind of have to fit this mold? I definitely like a challenge. Okay. Um, I like to be hemmed in by various um, restrictions. Um, I think it makes it more fun for me. Like it just um, gives me like... It makes me more creative when sure. I have those limitations. Um, and I also think like marketers like numbers that can like fit in an ad. Sure. You know, yeah. <laughs> for being honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like it. I mean, I, you know what you're getting, right? If you're a person who's looking for these types of recipes, you know exactly what you're getting with your book. Um, we talked a little bit about the concept of the book, but I want to talk about the title because mm -hmm. you also, in the intro to the introduction to the book, say that you you quite literally do dream of dinner, both daydream and like actually dream at night. And I just want to like fact check that you actually <laughs> are like g walking around dreaming about dinner on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, my boyfriend's in this room, and he can um, he can validate that like when we're eating breakfast, I'm like, what do you want to eat for dinner? Sure. And he <laughs> is like, I cannot answer that question and so then I spend the whole day thinking about it sure yeah <laughs> and and you spend the day I, I think you write in the book that you know you're commuting or, or going wherever you need to go thinking about this and you play this sort of dinner Tetris yeah right, in your head which I think is such a great description of how a recipe developer works and I'm wondering if you can sort of explain what that looks sure. like I feel like we're getting really psychoanalytical <laughs> no, now like <laughs> yeah an interview is also therapy yeah, yeah. um uh -huh. I think, well, when I started this book, I did a focus group with a lot of different just like home cooks under, I wanted to understand how they decide what to make for dinner. Cause I mm -hmm. think one of the hardest parts of making dinner is like just figuring out what the heck to cook. Um, and so for me, I start with like basically what will go bad first that I have in my house. So sometimes that's chicken, but like sometimes that's also just basil. And so I start with kind of like that hero ingredient and think about 
what do I feel like eating? So like, do I want something creamy or crispy? But also like, what do I feel like cooking? Because I think like being in the kitchen, those half an hour, 40 minutes, like that's a moment when you could be really bummed out and like stressed out because you have to make dinner or you could like just enjoy that process. So I do think about like, do I want to be really hands off? Just like throw something in an oven. Do I want to like get out some stress and like chop a bunch of little things? Um, So this is what I'm doing when I'm not doing other things i'm just thinking about this and kind of like it's almost like a dance rehearsal like thinking about the movements in the kitchen and i think like as i keep going through it in my head the process gets more efficient and more streamlined the ingredients gets more streamlined and yeah then i make dinner and then you get a recipe and i love that you do it all in your head i think for people who are not professionally trained cooks many of us home cooks right it's a lot of that happens in real time right like we're making a pasta and we try something and realize that isn't going to work and it takes a long time for to maybe internalize that. So I love that you're doing all of that internally before you actually execute the recipe. Not to say that everything you make is always perfect. No, <laughs> definitely <laughs> not. I think too, like part of that Tetris is sometimes making something that is not delicious. Like when people say like, well, how do I, how do I like experiment in the kitchen? And I really just think it's about doing it over and over again. And there will be some dinners that are just fine. Sure. And it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's just dinner. <laughs> it's just that was that was the one original title idea. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, this focus group is interesting. Where where the is this? You know, people you know, friends. Like, talk a little bit about what you learned from that focus group that you had. It was. I think it was like fifty to seventy five people, just like people that I knew cooked a lot at home, um, but weren't necessarily professional cooks. Um, and what I got from it was that everyone does it extremely differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the product of that focus group was really, how can I provide as many different options for how people make dinner as possible? So that means that there's 150 recipes, which is a lot of recipes, but also just like a lot of different types of dinner. So like some people do want a meat and two sides. Some people are fine with like a bowl of mush. Um, sure. And some people are fine with both, depending on what they feel like. Yeah. And the way you structured the book, I'm curious, did that come out of the focus group? Like the, so for folks who haven't had much time with it yet, the chapters are by sort of hero ingredient, right? Eggs or beans or poultry. And then within there you have it subdivided sort of by technique, right? Loosely sort of by technique. But was that something that came from that focus group or something that you knew early on you wanted to do with the book? Yeah, that was something early on um, because I felt like some people really want to hold on to a recipe when they're cooking, like they need all of the details. And some people just kind of need like the spark or like the idea to get them started. And so I wanted the book to work kind of at both levels. So some nights, like you're just not going to follow steps. And so if you have the techniques to make um, a main ingredient into dinner, you're able to kind of freestyle and add in whatever ingredients you have. Yeah. There, there's sort of loose recipes in that sense. And you, you say 150 recipes, and I almost want to like correct you because I feel like so many recipes have like seven variations listed below them and I'm like, or, or side recipes. Um, and actually I was like, 
looking through the book the other day, and within the first maybe like 10 pages of the first chapter on eggs, I already had like, my brain was just going. Like within the first 10 pages, you suggested there's an omelet recipe. And then in the footnote, you say like, you could take your leftover Indian from the night before and fold it into an omelet. And then on the next page, you're like making a frittata. And there's a side note about Cuban frittata and stirring it into grain salads, which is another thing I'd never thought of. And then there's like a sidebar guacamole recipe on the next page. I'm like, there's just so much it, it's a very simple recipe layout but there's so many elements that you can sort of play with how challenging was that for you it feels like there's 300 recipes <laughs> yeah, in here really true. <laughs> um sometimes i think i just like made a book of easter eggs where like there's actually like no that, construction yeah. and it's just like keep reading there's another tidbit totally. yeah. <laughs> um i think it's just like again like about the formality of a recipe like it assumes or it suggests to me that like you have to follow this thing exactly. But by giving these kind of Easter eggs, it I think it helps people feel more free and take a little bit more ownership as they're cooking. And I that's really my goal. Like I've, you know, part of what I do is I test other people's recipes. And when I do that, I have to follow the recipe exactly. So I totally understand the limits of like and the challenges of making something exactly um, and I just want, I don't want people to be challenged like that Yeah, if they don't want to be. I love the little Easter eggs because I think often too, with people who consume a lot of cookbooks, those are the things that really stick. A lot of, you know, we'll make recipes time and again, but these little like tidbits that sort of change how you think about an ingredient or a dish moving forward are really impactful. So I loved to see so many of those. You also did something that I think you know, some modern cooks might find controversial, some modern home cooks, which is removing the ingredient amounts from the ingredient list, which is something old, some older books used to do, right? Having them yeah. embedded in the recipe uh, instructions themselves. Of course, Joy of Cooking is yeah. the most classic example. Can you talk about that decision and what the reaction to that has Thank been? Thank you for pointing out that I'm not the first one. You're not the first, no way. <laughs> it is the one thing that people are extremely mad at me about. Really? Extremely mad at me, yeah. Just but to I, be clear, you still have measurements. It is all there. It's just formatted differently. Yes. So the inspiration really was Nigel Slater's books, um, which I was that you why I was a US editor when I was on Ten Speed, and I just loved the experience of reading those books mm -hmm. and the way that it kind of like lifted you off into the kitchen with so many good ideas. Um and also like ideas that don't tax you. So then you can kind of go on your own. So the way that the book is set out is instead of like an ingredient list, you have a shopping list. So you can kind of scan the list and see what you have and don't have. And then if you don't have something, you can look in the recipe and find the measurement. It was also my sneaky way of making people read the recipe before they um, started cooking. Smart. Um, or if you choose not to read the recipe first, you will just go to the store and buy a thing and it will most likely be the right quantity because everything is like a standard quantity or it won't be enough. And then you have to figure out what to do. And that is the moment when you learn how to cook. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I really love the approach. I'm, I'm sure you've had some, some feedback uh -huh. that is uh, yep. not so uh, as you alluded to, but you also make a note that Doing this removes some of the phrase um, hidden work in an ingredient list, which I think is really important and something a lot of people don't think about. You give this example of one half cup toasted chopped skin off hazelnuts actually equates to about half an hour of work to take whole hazelnuts and apply those things to them and make them that way. So I, I loved that concept too, that you know, for home cooks who are 
trying to get dinner on the table quickly and want a 30 minute recipe that there's not 30 minutes of prep work hidden in the list. Yeah. I mean, when I started using recipes as a kid, no one taught me how to read that format. Mm -hmm. So I just did what my mom did, which was she would just measure as she went. And so in a lot of ways, you like reduce cleanup because you don't have all these little bowls of measured things. Um, and I just thought that's how you cooked. Like when it said add the nuts, you looked and saw how many nuts were there and then you just measured it. So that I tried to kind of incorporate that style and that process into the recipe. Yeah. You also don't have sort of traditional head notes throughout the book. You have I, maybe you have a better term for it than me, but you have what I would maybe call subheaders. Mm. Um, they're very succinct sort of descriptions of the recipe or sometimes even just like descriptions of the mood the recipe evokes, uh, but often no more than like seven or eight words. Uh, was that a conscious decision early on? And can you talk about it? It almost felt like it'd be more challenging <laughs> to try and write that than to write like a five sentence head note. Right. I think um, there's so many weeknight dinner cookbooks out there. I felt really strongly that every decision that I made with this book had to achieve the goal of the book, which was to make dinner easily and joyfully any night, no matter your scenario. And for me, there is totally a value in a headnote, in a long headnote, but in this book, it was not necessary. Sure. And so I just went with like, you know, when you're like explaining something that you made to someone and they're, and you just like want the one tagline, you want like the one thing that succinctly wraps up what's great about the recipe. So I give those to you. I love it. Like the smoky white beans and cauliflower recipe. The only other description you get for that recipe is paprika stained and aioli swaddled like batatas bravas. I feel like does so much and also is so like a little bit mystic and a little bit alluring and like it's there's not a whole backstory there. So I, I loved that approach. Let's talk about recipes a little bit. Um, at the end, you decided to include this in index well, it's not an index of sorts it's sort of a guide um and it's called recipes by cravings moods and realities um i'm guessing that was also probably something that you knew you wanted to do going into the book and you offer things like tonight i need dinner in 10 minutes and a selection of recipes there tonight i need you know to clear out my vegetable drawer a list of possible recipes there um i think we've we're seeing more and more of those types of things tucked into the back of cookbooks uh what is the reaction to that ben it's a little devastating to me because that oh, section no. was actually three times as long oh, and okay. um, we had to cut it. But people have like really loved that section. Yeah. They've really appreciated just like that summation in the back of the book. Yeah. Next time. Next time. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe an appendix. <laughs> yes, right? exactly. Yeah. On an online PDF yeah. <laughs> that you can download, right? Um, do you have favorite? I hate the word favorite, so I'm going to rephrase that. Do you have recipes in the book that are sort of really near and dear to you after this process? Ooh, good question. Well, there's um, my mom's chili, of course, yeah. um, which I think was like, there are some of my college friends here. I made it in college very often. Like anyone can make this chili and it has very smart um, swaps that my mom would use. So she uses jarred salsa. She uses ketchup and it is really delicious and um, was a big part of growing up. There's always some in my freezer. So I feel happy that I got to work on that recipe with her um, to kind of fine tune it so that it could be a recipe because yeah. she did not have a recipe for it. And and I think I read somewhere too that when you first 
tried to make the recipe as you thought it should be made, you both kind of realize, no, this needs a little more work to get it to yeah. where it is from your memory, your childhood memory. Yeah. Right? I would like send her a draft and she would make it and she'd be like, no. Uh-huh. And then we'd go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. No, you also spent some time with her during the creation of this book, right? Because you created this book during the pandemic. Can you talk about how that impacted you as an author? Um, <laughs> I don't know. She um, <laughs> she has very honest feedback. <laughs> okay. And so, so if she likes it, it is truly good. Uh-huh. Um, and I think a lot of this, I think she... I think she enjoyed working on it with me and I enjoyed her feedback. Um, and I think it, she definitely is like a good BS meter in terms of like, are you really going to, is someone really going to make that? Yeah. So that was helpful. It's good to have that. Yeah. I'm curious to how the pandemic affected you, obviously being around your mother and having her BS meter is one, one thing, but also, you know, putting together a book of this size and with this many recipes, when I, th- I think for part of the book, right, we were in lockdown, shopping was maybe more limited, you yeah. weren't able to do as much as you might have been in normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. The whole book was written during the pandemic. I signed the contract like the week okay. of um, shutdown. Um, and I think it affected the book in a lot of ways. Part of what was interesting was like not being able to predict what grocery shopping or what cooking would be like in two years, because I wrote this book mostly in 2020. Um, But I think the biggest benefit that it had to the book was I was only shopping once a week. So Mm -hmm. normally when I recipe test, I like go to the store once or twice a day, maybe. um, And I didn't have that. So I would just go once a week and think about every ingredient I might need. And as I was testing, if I thought like, oh, it really needs this or that, I couldn't go to the store and get it. But it made me just look in my fridge and think like, what else could contribute that? And so in that way, there are, I think, like creative solutions and just like um, a smaller requirement in terms of pantry ingredients. Yeah. It feels like a, a book that sort of really did come out of the pandemic and not, we were talking before about all of these pandemic trends, right? The early days of sourdough and all sorts of things when people had free time. But I think now, anybody can correct me, at least I feel like folks are getting back out into the world yeah. and taking on big cooking projects kind of feels daunting because the re-entry to our normal life is already kind of taxing on us socially. So I'm curious, you know, how it feels to you to have published a book that feels sort of like it taps into that moment that we're in where people are wanting to maybe pare back a little bit and have things be a little simpler and faster. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um when I write a recipe, I'm really thinking about what it asks of someone. So like going to the grocery store is time, you know, spending money like that. I take that really seriously. So whenever I'm asking for an ingredient, like I really want to make sure it's worth it. And I think these days, like that's all of that is just even more important. Yeah. We're a show on cookbooks, obviously. So I always like to talk about cookbooks more broadly. I know we talked about your mom having some cookbooks in the house as you were growing up instead of novels, just entirely. <laughs> but are there, do you remember sort of like the first cookbook that was really, you were really drawn to or some of those ones from your childhood that you really enjoyed reading? Um, I think How to Be a Domestic Goddess by Nigella Lawson yeah. was just so fun. And there's like a peanut butter, if anyone has the book, there's this peanut butter slab 
bar in it that you know an 11 year old can make and it is i mean it has so much sugar and it is so <laughs> good <laughs> i'm sure yes um she also i don't know if they still do it but cooks illustrated had that subscription where they would just like send you a book and right you know it was like annoying to return it so you just kept it um so i loved all of those <laughs> but i think too those books like taught you the why and the how of a recipe in a way that um really taught me a lot so i appreciated those you mentioned in the book a book that I am not familiar with, Romancing the Bean by <laughs> Joanne Saltzman. Is this like a book that's near and dear to you? And I also no. <laughs> understand that she writes in the um, from the perspective of the bean in the book. I don't know if other folks are familiar with this book. <laughs> Is it here? Um, I don't know how I know about that book. I think I was like looking up like 90s cookbooks because okay. I think there's just like working at 10 Speed, you learn about all of these amazing books that are no longer in print. And I wanted to kind of acknowledge some of that sure. history. Okay, well, we'll we'll all spend time looking up <laughs> Romancing the Bean later, I'm sure, because it's very intriguing to me. Um, obviously, Nigella, are there other cookbook authors who have been really influential to you as you've become a cookbook author and a, a recipe developer yourself? Um, I mean, I think Samin just like did it all. Yeah, you Samin know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, she um, kind of codified a lot of things that I didn't know she put into words a lot of things that like you feel in a kitchen and don't understand why it's happening. Um, and I just think that book is so good. Also like a really great guide for just like, um, levity, like, mm -hmm. um, teaching, but also not being a professorial. Sure. Um, and so I love that. I think too, Andrea Wynn also does that yeah. just like an incredible voice. Um, and just so many good ideas. Yeah. What do you think makes a great cookbook? Well, I think books, they do so many different things. Like there's not like one form. I mean, I think there's so many good narrative books um, in terms of storytelling. This is not that kind of book. I think books that give you new ideas and also um, books that kind of like, for me, I get like excited. Like I have to put the book down so that I can go cook from it. Like uh -huh. that is a real feeling. And when I know that it's really good. Yeah. That's great. Well, we always end with little games. So um, we have our cards in front of us here. And of course, we're going to borrow your I Dream of Dinner theme and your, your dinner matrix concept and maybe play a couple rounds. This is sort of like the game, the TV show Chopped, right? So you can assume you have a, a fully stocked pantry larder, um, but we have secret ingredient cards, which can be sort of more obscure um, or just random ingredients. And then flavor cards, which are you know spices, herbs, flavoring agents, vegetables, and proteins. So I thought maybe you'd draw one from each of the stacks. Okay. I did shuffle them a bit, but you can pick and choose from wherever in the, in the deck you'd like. Um, and then you'll have four things to work with and tell us how those might fit into your sort of dinner matrix okay. and come up with something for dinner tonight. My matrix takes all day. So this okay, is well, we're, we'll see if we can condense it a bit, but this will be fun. Okay. All oh my right. god. Okay. Oh, you got the dreaded secret ingredient card that nobody likes. Do I have to put it can I put it back? I'm not allowed. Okay. <laughs> I have so, faith in you. Tell, tell us what we have. So I started on a high note with chickpeas, which is really a great scenario. And then I got green beans, which feels also great. Mm -hmm. Cinnamon. There is a recipe in a book. I love cinnamon with tomatoes. Autolenghi um taught me that, and it really is incredible. I don't have tomatoes in mine. Okay. Well, you might, you might have some in your vegetables. <laughs> and then I got gummy bears. So. Yes. <laughs> can that be dessert? People, it can be dessert. dessert. People it's don't dessert. like it. I don't know. 
there's some really obscure ingredients in there that feel really challenging, but whenever somebody draws gummy bears, it's just like, mind is blocked. Yeah. Everybody just wants to melt them down, which you could do. But I, I'm curious how you'd approach this. Okay, so I think I would do... I can't do the gummy bears. Okay. They can, they can be in a nice little bowl for dessert. It's just a texture problem. Yeah. It's not the flavor. I think that's why people always want to melt them down. <laughs> okay. Do you, so, want, do you want to swap your secret? No, no, I got it, you I can got have it, one. Okay, okay. Okay, so there's a recipe in the book, which is really one of my favorites and perfect for right now, which is um, it's roasted chickpeas with paprika and peppers i think and then on another sheet pan there's like croutons and you toss it all together with some mozzarella i might have messed up what's on which pan but so i would do roasted tomatoes cinnamon chickpeas gummy bears all right (laughs) (laughs) have we have you ever roasted a gummy bear what how about one gummy bear a single gummy bear okay all right (laughs) not pineapple okay and then i would do so that's like a roasty thing. And then I would do like a chopped green bean relish on top. Okay. Like a thinly sliced mm. green bean relish. So you have like soft warming and then you have like assertive crunchy herb top. Yeah. On bread or greens. And some lucky person is going to get a bite of gummy bear right in the middle yeah. of all of it. <laughs> All right, let's try one more round. Let's see okay. if you get a, a better secret ingredient this time. You put that one on top. <laughs> I didn't. I swear. The secret ingredient was the deck that I definitely shuffled. So. Ooh, this is fun. Okay. Lamb, potato, basil. Okay. Sriracha. All right. Lamb, potato, basil, and sriracha. Okay. So I would just do a lamb meatball with sriracha and basil mm-hmm. roasted with potatoes, and tomatoes. Delicious. (laughs) So the lamb fat will season the potatoes and make that saucy and yummy. Okay, all on the same pan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh And then the basil, more basil on top for freshness. I love it. Maybe some sesame seeds. People really love the sesame chicken meatballs in the book. Kind of inspired by that. Yeah, I love that. Um, And no gummy bears. Can we work them in? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm so sorry you had to get the gummy bear card. I know. I know what a challenge that is. I do feel like I need to make that dish just to see what would happen. Okay. Well, please please do and report back and let us know. (laughs) This is when those like so so dinners start happening. It's when you're like, oh, well, gummy bears. People are going to be afraid to eat at your house now. There's going to be one gummy bear just like hiding in a certain dish. Well, thank you for playing along, and thank you so much. Thank you to all of our audience here, and thank you, Ali, for joining us today. Thank you so much. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to this special live recording of Salt and Spine from Omnivore Books in San Francisco. As a reminder, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. You'll find featured recipes from Ali Slagle's I Dream of Dinner, including the turmeric shrimp with citrus and avocado and the spicy seared tofu and broccoli. 
Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And we also love to see your ratings on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worcester. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Today's episode was, of course, recorded in front of a live audience at Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Salt and Spine also records at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen now offers both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Celia Sack and her team at Omnivore Books, to Edible San Francisco, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.